It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. And yes, uh, normally we would do a question and answer session on the our odd-numbered episodes, but today we've got a very important story. We're going to talk about that breaking news from the last week about the NSA breaking all the encryption. Is it true? What does Steve say? We'll talk about it next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 421. Recorded September 11th, 2013. The Perfect Accusation. Security Now is brought to you by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off on your new account, go to ProXPN.com twit and use the code SN20. And by Audible.com. To download the free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers you and your privacy and security online with the guy, the man, the myth, the legend, the one and only. <laughs> He's holding up his spyglass. Steve Gibson of GRC.com, our explainer in chief. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again. I was looking at the number 421. Now, of course, those that's a particularly special number for me because that's the first three digits of binary. So, you know, four, two, and one are the first. Oh, wow. Five. You've got a mind that works in mysterious ways. Oh, I, I see patterns and things, but that's a lot of episodes. I mean, just that I, mean, I noticed. Yeah. <laughs> huh? Yeah. He, like, okay, we have and, to explain because uh, John Slanina, who's a very bright guy, says what? So the binary numbers are one. And zero. Yeah, but but oh, the, but one, the two four eight one two four two sixty four and so forth. So one oh one. So like, so, 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 yeah. So when like I, I've been doing a lot of work back in assembly language with with the the work on Spinrite. Yeah. And so I'm and, and some of the screens that I'm putting up show hex dumps of registers. And so they you know the hex dump will will show 05. And so I have to decompose that into 101 right. to know which bits of the status the bus mastering controller has set and not. And so you know I'm so like when I look at 421 I what I see is oh the binary values of the first 3 bits <laughs> right. of Bit, yeah. the, the 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 first bit is one, one zero one. The second bit is represents the twos. You get it now? He, he said it was the first three it's reversed. Numbers. Yeah. No. No. Okay. It. Got it. He says you said it was the first three binary numbers, and obviously that's not. It's the first three. It's the decimal places on. It would be zero ten a hundred thousand in decimal. It's zero one two four eight sixteen in binary. Right. And and the the order of them in this case. Four, two, and one is the is the you know binary value when it's in a hex representation of each right. of those digit places. So. And that's what and you know the truth is I should recognize it because uh, four, two, one 
are the bits that you set with chmod when you're in linux when you're changing precisely. file permissions precisely yeah. exactly yeah. and so you, it, it's a seven it's a seven <laughs> folks if we haven't baffled you yet <laughs> You belong here. This is your show. You found the right show. Uh, this was not a test to see whether you qualify for the balance of the podcast. Yeah, but it, this was yeah. a little diversion. Now, we were supposed to do a Q&A. Yes, we were. We're not, I see. How could we? You I know, know. It's just endless, isn't it? Once again, on the day after the podcast, just, a this massive, is... it was last Thursday... We had you on the radio show to talk about it. It was such a big story. And I came on uh, w with Tom on, on Tech News today That's right, yeah. I, uh, in order to talk a little bit about it. Basically, to sort of calm people down. And and what I want to do today, we're, we're going to talk about this most re the most recent round of revelations, which, which, as we've seen before, unfortunately... The press goes crazy. Oh, yeah. You know, it's not the functions which are hyperbolic. It's the headlines. And, and so I, I, I titled this The Perfect Accusation because as we're going to see, what we, what, is, what we actually know is that, that like where and I've, I've read all these press articles that, that talk about the NSC, the, 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 sorry, the NSA has substantially is substantially able to crack all of the Internet's cryptography and subvert it. And they've been working behind the scenes to weaken it. And, and, and there is a lot to be disturbed about. So 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 I've got so we'll talk about the news. But but once again, the. The real meat here is where I want to focus the podcast because that's what this podcast is for. And and in 07, our friend Bruce Schneier wrote a beautiful summary of, of the one, the only thing that anyone has been able to point to that suggests that maybe the NSA was involved behind the scenes in weakening something that no one cares about. I mean, it absolutely <laughs> this is the NIST uh, standard. Yes, yeah. this well, this is one. This is one fourth of it that is the worst fourth. That is the. It's like the the unloved stepchild random number generator. I've never heard of anyone using it. No one would ever use it. It's slower than like <laughs> orders of magnitude than the other good ones, and. It's just it's like bizarre, but the but the key is it is perfect because even if it were cracked and it isn't, we don't even know that that there was influence behind the scenes. But we really do as an industry need to be more vigilant. So this accusation is could not be more perfect because probably the crypto industry wasn't asking enough questions, wasn't saying, hey, now, wait a minute, you know, where'd you come up with these magic numbers in here? And, and so something was allowed to happen. And part of the reason it was allowed to happen is everyone knew, well, it doesn't matter. But, but it's perfect because it serves as an object lesson. The entire crypto industry is aware of this. Um, all of our listeners will be and everyone can at least breathe a sigh of relief because 
Because very much in the same way that I said, I, the first day that we talked about the Snowden leaks, and I said, I'm so glad. You know, and we had it was, the news was very fresh, and we weren't sure what it was going to come to. Similarly, I am exactly so glad about this because because this is a wake up call that we needed. That the fact that this happened at all says, okay, we were getting too lax, but it can never again be the case that anyone is accused of of you know too much tinfoil because because of Essentially, what 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 did happen six years ago shouldn't have, but it doesn't matter anyway. We have, yeah, that's I, what the I, professor at John Hop, Johns Hopkins said uh, in his blog post that Johns Hopkins I, 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 forced him to pull down. Well, yeah, I, I'm going to talk about Matt. Matt Green is a neat cryptographer, and it's not actually that blog post, but uh, but the one. I don't remember if it was after or before, but I'm going to share that in its entirety at the t- toward the end of this because because more than anyone else I've read, Matthew perfectly sort of lays out the terrain. Yeah. And 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 our listeners will end up coming away from this podcast saying, "Okay, I understand exactly what happened." I uh, and and I'm I feel comfortable with it. I yeah. I mean Revelations were definitely part of this. With, with, with what oh yeah, we, we found know out. we do know new stuff. These documents are creepy yeah, when you read them. Yeah. But I also I also think eh, they feel to me like maybe this is how we get our budget pumped up a little bit. Some of what they're saying is like eh, okay. it's a little they're overselling their the case a exactly. Yeah, I, yeah. I I think a real close analysis would would come to that conclusion. Yeah. We'll also talk about the fingerprint reader in the iPhone uh, and yep. and lots more. Uh, of course, yep. all the all the news coming up in just a little bit. Steve Gibson and uh, I think it'd be a good time just to pause briefly before we get in the meat here and talk a little bit about uh, our great sponsor because <laughs> times times are right for Pro XPN. Steve has talked before about Open VPN, which is the best standard, the standard he recommends for uh, secure uh, conversations when you're at an open access. Point when you're at a hotel or an airport, when you're well, you don't frankly trust your ISP or you want to protect yourself against the ISP. Uh, Open VPN creates an encrypted tunnel between you and the VPN server. In this case, it'd be Pro XPN, uh, and nobody can see into that tunnel. And nothing we've learned to date indicates that's possible. Pro XPN uses strong encryption to make sure you're safe. 2,048-bit encryption keys. And the tunnel itself is 512-bit. It is very safe, very secure. Uh, I just think they do a really good job. And if you're looking for a VPN, I want you to check them out. Pro X, by the way, not V, Pro XPN. They do a VPN. I know that's a little confusing. Um, if if what happens is you 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 run Pro XPN on your end. Uh, actually, most most out there operating systems have built-in software that you so you don't need to add any additional software. Although they do have an Android uh, program now, which is great because that means you instead of having to use PPTP, which is a little less secure, you can use OpenVPN from an Android device. But it'll work with Windows and Mac, and, and they do have additional software if you want. It works on iOS using PPTP. Um, and so what happens is from your point, your phone or your desktop. Out into the world, you're encrypted. The ISP can't see you if you worry about the six strikes rule or ISPs. We, you know, we know that the feds have asked ISPs to record 18 months of all Internet traffic. You don't have to worry about that. They'll record it, but it's gobbledygook. Um, and um, by the way, this is not SSL. This is OpenVPN. Uh, 
This is a different and more secure, in some senses, service. Um, so you'll bypass that kind of thing. Then you emerge uh, into the world on the uh, ProXPN servers. Now, they have servers all over the place. Dallas, Seattle, London, Singapore, Los Angeles, New York City, and Amsterdam. Uh, I think the company's based in uh, in uh, the Netherlands. We deal with uh, their marketing people who are in Singapore. They're truly a global company. That's a nice thing, too, because you can decide where you want your traffic to merge out in public. And if you want to bypass geographic restrictions, for instance, Chinese uh, dissidents use this all the time. They don't want the – that gets around the Great Firewall of China. Uh, and they can emerge in any of those, uh, those places. Uh, servers all over the world mean – You've got privacy. You've got control over where you emerge under the Internet. With their software for Windows and Mac, you can get advanced controls, allowing you to select the programs and ports you want to route. Of course, by default, you get email, everything. All the programs that go online, web surfing is all encrypted. Instant messaging, file sharing. Now, here's the deal. Normally, uh, now there is a free version. You certainly can try that, but normally the pro version which gives you all of these features, is $9.95 a month. You can buy it by the year, $74.95. That's actually a very good deal. But when you use our offer code SN20, you'll get 20% off, not for the first month or the first year, but for the lifetime of your account. 20% off. That means forever, less than 5 bucks a month for this kind of security, this kind of privacy. Um, visit proxpn.com slash twit. Learn more about it, how it works, what it does. Set up your account. You have seven days to cancel for a full refund. But do, when you set up that account, use SN20 as your offer code so that you'll save 20% for the life of your account. This is the way to do it. ProXPN.com. Steve Gibson, uh, Leo Laporte, Security Now. <laughs> Let's get the security news. Yeah, so again... We are on this side of a Patch Tuesday, so I feel a little bit of an obligation just to note that to our users. When I fired up my Win 7 machine that I use only for once a week or sometimes a little more frequent Skype connections with you guys, um, I had five updates that it wanted to give me. Um, I'm not sure actually why it was so few because um, there were 14. Oh, I know why. It's because I don't have... You don't have those SharePoint server yeah, on, there you go. On, on this machine. Um, so, yeah, so we are this side of Patch Tuesday. Microsoft and Adobe had treats for us. Uh, in Microsoft's case, four of their 14 patch bundles are rated critical, um, collectively fixing 47, at least 47 known security vulnerabilities. And I thought it was interesting. Microsoft is beginning to sense the friction against updates, especially when updates are messing things up. So, I mean, that really hurts them. So they have, they're, they're beginning to prioritize them. And Microsoft re recommended, and this is my phraseology, for reluctant enterprise class upgraders, uh, that they prioritize and install the Outlook, the IE, and the SharePoint server fixes with a higher priority because those are a bigger problem. And at least one of the SharePoint uh, vulnerabilities uh, has been publicly disclosed. So it's ripe for exploitation. And in a corporate setting, you don't want anybody getting into your servers that way. So definitely uh, worth doing that. Adobe was a grand slam. Flash, Acrobat, Reader, 
Shockwave Player, and Adobe Air. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> but Microsoft's Everything. updating those, or is that a set? That's the Adobe updater. That's the well. Adobe has has updated them now. IE10 has auto update now, and of course Google Chrome was the leader of the pack in auto updating browser technology. Right. Uh, OS X, oh, sorry, OS 10. I keep writing X, and I, that's why I say it. OS is, 10 yeah, yeah. Uh, will will block older versions now, and so it's 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 aware of that and tell you you need to update. So it's really only Firefox and Opera users who are still may need to deliberately go and get it. And as always, if you do go to the site and grab a, a download update pack, make sure you disable the default enabled McAfee security scan if you don't wish to have that installed in your machine. It's it's just amazing that they you know think they can get away with that. But I guess you know they get money from from McAfee. Yeah. Um, Yahoo has joined some of the other uh, un very unhappy commercial providers named by in the very early Edward Snowden links in suing the the federal government and the FISA court for, for essentially for for the damages they're experiencing over loss of reputation. Uh, Yahoo said on Monday that they, they joined other U.S. technology giants in launching legal action against the federal government over the NSA surveillance revealed by whistleblower Edward Snowden. Um, I'm, I'm reading from an article in The Guardian, which I thought was interesting because this article, I, I salute The Guardian, is pretty rough on The Guardian. Uh, it said uh, Yahoo filed a suit in the Foreign Intelligence Surve uh, Surveillance FISA court which provides the legal framework for NSA surveillance, of course, as we know, to allow the company to make public the number. So they're saying to allow the company to make public the number of data requests it receives per year from the spy agency. Now, again, that seems like a benign thing. To, they're not saying we want to say who. We just want to say how many. And and I think they Google's only... Google's asked to, for this too. Yes, and uh, I think Facebook as well, and of course, yes, Google said no. and Facebook. Yeah. Google and Facebook are are the other, uh, and also Microsoft is in there right, too. Right, uh, and uh, one of the Yahoo guys said Yahoo's inability to respond to news reports has harmed its reputation and has undermined its business not only in the United States but worldwide. Yahoo cannot respond to such reports with mere generalities, um, and. And also it says criticizing news coverage specifically by The Guardian and The Washington Post, Yahoo said media outlets were mistaken in claiming that the PRISM program allowed the U.S. government to tap directly into the servers to collect information. It said that claim was false. So, you know, we still have this, this cloud of we don't know the details, and that cloud may never be lifted. You know, you'll remember, of course, everyone will remember, my original theory was if we take the denials of, of, the, of the, the reading that some looking at Snowden's slides gave and take the position that the NSA has stalled taps just upstream of the providers, then it, it very much solves the same problem um, without actually requiring that these companies are complicit in this. So, again, we don't know, um, but it, it's 
to me, this is interesting because it is clearly the case that our the, the domestic corporate interests are really being hurt by by this by this notion that they're collaborating with the NSA and people who are upset by the idea that their you know privacy is being compromised. So, another one in the pile. Um, also, OpenID or my OpenID. Uh, which was a service run by Jan Rain for, wow, seven years, uh, announced that they're going to be closing on February 1st of 2014. Uh, the CEO, uh, Larry Drebs, explained, he said, in 06, Jan Rain created my open ID to fulfill our vision to make registration and login easier on the web for people. Since that time, social networks and email providers such as Facebook, Google, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Yahoo have embraced open identity standards. And now billions of people who have created accounts with these services can use their identities to easily register and log into sites across the web in the way my open ID was intended. By 2009, it had become obvious that the vast majority of consumers would prefer to utilize an existing identity from a recognized provider rather than create their own MyOpenID account. As a result, our business focus changed to address this desire, and we introduced social login technology. While the technology is slightly different from where we were in 06, I'm confident that we're still delivering on our initial promise that people should take control of their online identity and are empowered to carry those identities with them as they navigate the web. For those of you who still actively use my open ID, I can understand your disappointment to hear this news and apologize if this causes you any inconvenience. To reduce this inconvenience, we're delaying the end of life of the service until February 1st, 2014, to give you time to begin using other identities on those sites where you use my open ID today. Um, and then he says, speaking on behalf of Jan Rain, I truly appreciate your past support of my open ID. So, you know, we originally covered this. Yeah, I when used it, it frankly. Well, and when it happened. And, and I mean, it had, it, I would guess I would call this early first generation uh, and early first generation attempt. Um, to, to give our listeners a quick review, you, you, you logged in kind of perversely with a URL and it was actually it was a URL to a page that you controlled and so that was the concept you know the idea being there's always this notion of something you control for example using email to authenticate you control your email account in this case the idea was you controlled a web page and so you logged in with a URL to the web page and then that the site could go there to pick up your login credentials for authentication. And anyway, it just sort of, it was interesting. You could sometimes you'd run across a website that would say, oh, log in with my, you know, with open ID. And so, so these guys were for people who didn't have their own website and web server and couldn't easily manage their own page. This was a service to provide that identity sort of as, as a third party provider. So it was an interesting notion. And what he's talking about, of course, when he refers to social login is what we've since been covering, which people see as, you know, log in with your Facebook account.
account. Log in with your Twitter account. And that's the OAuth approach where where the site you're attempting to authenticate to bounces you over to a site where you are already known. You authenticate there, give permissions as required, and then behind the scenes, that site authenticates you to the to the place you were trying to log in, and you are your browser is again bounced back to where you originally were. Now authenticated. Um, and then behind the scenes is the is the plumbing to make that secure. We did a podcast on OAuth uh, quite some time ago. At this point, Facebook accounts for 46% of OAuth social login use. So it's the leader at 46%. Google is second at 34%. Yahoo is somewhat distant third at 7 Twitter right behind it at 6 then a whole bunch of other sort of there two also rands collectively have about six percent, and Microsoft is less than one percent. So Facebook is you know the clear leader with Google uh, coming in in second place at at thirty four, um, and that's where we are. And of course, uh, uh, there's a lot of attention being given to login, and I've teased everyone last week with the idea that I think I may have a really terrific solution that's better than all of that. So uh, I will be working on that soon. Many people, uh, as a consequence of the NSA revelations, have tweeted me and said, hey, Steve, what about LastPass? You vetted it. You use it. Leo uses it. Everybody likes it. But where are they relative to the NSA? Responding to that yesterday, Joe posted a blog that I'm going to share with our listeners. He said, with news that the United States National Security Agency has deliberately inserted weakness into security products and attempted to modify NIST standards, questions have been raised about how these actions affect LastPass and our customers. We want to directly address whether LastPass has been or could be weakened and whether our users' data remains secure. In short, we have not weakened our product or introduced a backdoor and haven't been asked to do so. If we were forced by law to take these actions, we would fight it. If we were unable to successfully fight it, we would consider shutting down the service. We will not break our commitment to our customers. Although, although we are not currently in the position of having to consider closing the service, it is important to note that if LastPass had to be shut down, our users would be able to export their data or continue using LastPass in offline mode, although online login and syncing would no longer be possible. We have consistently reiterated that LastPass cannot share what we cannot access. Sensitive user data is encrypted and decrypted locally with a key that is never shared with LastPass. As always, we encourage our users to create strong master password to better protect themselves from brute force attacks. Given our technology and the lack of access to stored user data, it is more efficient for the NSA or others to try to circumnavigate LastPass 
and find other ways to obtain user information. Ultimately, when you use an online service, you are trusting the people behind that service to have your best interests at heart and to fight on your behalf. We have built a tradition of being open and honest with our community and continue to put the security and privacy of our customers first. We will continue to monitor the situation and change course as needed with updates to our community when necessary. Thank you to our community for your ongoing use and support of LastPass. And now this so, is the this is the fundamental problem with any closed source solution is yes they do everything right but they could be coerced to put a backdoor in the closed source the binary that you're required to use right well they're remember that they're running javascript on our browser oh all right so and it is open source then unless it is obfuscated yeah no it's open source and they even in i mean this is why I've, i'm so happy with them is Everything that you could do, they have done. It is truly TNO. Otherwise, I would never have recommended it as I have. I wouldn't be using it myself. As right. I said, I don't right. know any of my passwords anymore. And, you know, no I one loves uses- LastPass, but I'd be very sad uh, to learn that, uh, you know, that it, could, well, it could have a backdoor. But it couldn't, you're saying. Point. Yes, it can't. Here's, here's the point is that the NSA did go after. Um, I'm blanking now. The email company, the email provider who Snowden used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm blanking too. <laughs> I put it out of my mind. Yeah. Anyway, we know who we're talking about. A couple right. weeks And he ago, shut down I, uh, much of the shut... dismay of the NSA. Lava well, because bit. Thank you, Lava he bit. wasn't actually offering. Yes, Lava Bit. Yeah. They, they did go after Lava Bit because he wasn't actually secure. It was fake security. You know, right. it. it it, it was it was completely vulnerable to him receiving a national security letter, which he would have to comply with, and he would have to violate his customers' privacy. All LastPass is storing for us is a is a pre-encrypted blob. They do not have the encryption key; only we do. What they get is a multi-iterated hash of the encryption key and our account name, our email address in this case, and password hashed a bunch of times, which serves as an opaque token with which to identify who the blob belongs to. So so our browser says, here's a blob and this cryptographic token, which means nothing, save this for us. And, and they do that. And then when over on our iPad, we, we log in. The iPad says, hey, are there any updates to this cryptographic tokens blob? And the LastPass server says, oh, I do have a newer blob for you. Here's your new blob. And so that's how synchronization works. Only when the blob gets down to the client, which then has the email address and password, are those used again cryptographically multiple iteration hash to generate a key which decrypts the blob there so there is there's the the and this is this is the model for the future this is the only way these things can work that's what we've been talking about for years pre-internet encryption and tno trust no one but there is there is no reason for the ni for the nsa to to bother let the last pass folks because their their system is secure now the the danger that exists is that they would be compelled to 
insert in the currently secure system some some insecure technology and we have to acknowledge the possibility. I, I, I mean, if, if I don't say it, I'm going to get flooded with tweets right, right. or say, Gibson, this is possible. And it's like, yes, it's possible. That, that, and, and unfortunately, one of the things that we know from this last week's revelations is the NSA is not happy that, they, that like LastPass exists and has done this in such a secure fashion. LastPass would love to have access to all of a given user's login passwords for their entire identity. Um, one of the things that m the protocol I will be shortly proposing solves is all of this. There's no reliance on, on this kind of vulnerability, which is one of the things that makes it better. But, but what Joe is saying is he won't do that. He will like LavaBit, just say, I'm sorry, we're pulling the plug. He won't be able to tell us why. He'll just say, LastPass has decided we're no, we can no longer offer this service. Um, good luck. Um, as opposed to uh, uh, breaking this trust. Now, then you wonder if him doing that uh, puts him in violation of a letter saying you need to give us access. Because right. that's one of the other things that LavaBit said was that there were... There was an implication in the email that, that his attorney was receiving that shutting down the email system was preventing the government from getting what they wanted from him. It's like, oh, Lord. So, so, And I'm sure the law allows them to compel him in some form to, you yeah. know, or, 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 and wouldn't be surprised if it compelled the LastPass to do it secretly, so... Yeah, Maybe I the mean, solution so, is to use the open source key pass. Uh, it's not as functional. Um, yeah, and then not update it. Right. I mean, well, it's open that's source. The is, that's the problem is the only I guess what we could do is if there was a way, for example, of freezing the last pad, last pass right. code base, right. then, you know, so that it. <laughs> but if it's it JavaScript, there isn't because you're loading it every single time, right? Exactly. Yeah. You're getting an update uh, from, you know, and the last pass plugin uses that in order to yeah. to provide your your form fill. So anyway, we we're in an interim awkward place right now, and I, I hope we can move past that quickly. Boy, it'd be really a big compromise to get LastPass. Yeah, because that would then they have everything. Yeah. So I, uh, uh, Jenny and I saw Riddick, <laughs> and I tweeted, "FWIW," yeah. which is you know for what it's worth, Riddick was pretty much awful. Yeah. I said, and I tweeted, "If you're sure you'll like it, then go with that." <laughs> But it was much less good than the two previous. Oh, you liked the other ones? Oh, Pitch Black was great. Okay. I, I thought that way. it was innovative and new and fun and interesting. And then the second one I thought was really fun, too. This was just kind of a cartoon. It's like, ah, okay. So I just saw, and many people thanked me for the warning. Uh, I mean, it's, it'll be on disc, you know, next Tuesday. So I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. But, you know, I mean, soon it'll be out. And spend $3 to get it on Apple TV or an Amazon download or something. Don't spend $15 in the theater if unless you really... can't tell you how few sequels are any good. Think about The Matrix. Yeah. yeah. Star Wars. Yeah. Well, people are going to yeah. yell at me for that one. But... Uh, so, um, and in response to this, um, David Bush tweeted... 
uh, from his his handle is Happy Slice. He said, "SGGRC Riddick movies were always campy." Right. Ar- can't can't argue that. He said, "I watched the first three episodes of Orphan Black yesterday. Oh, was that good? Yeah. Show. Thank you for that recommendation, by the way. Yes. And so yeah. the reason I brought this up is that." I've that I've had a lot of feedback from people. I haven't yet even poked into it yet, but Jenny also watched it and loves it. Yeah. And Elaine, who read the tran, who well created the transcript last week, noted that season one, episode one. I remember I said that that um, Paul had mentioned in the New York Times that he believed it was being re-aired. Uh, it it re-airs from on BBC America starting September fourteenth. As they so prepare that's for the new season. From- from three days, yes. So three days from now. Um, so for anyone who wants it, it was thirteen episodes. Was it thirteen or ten? Can't remember now. But anyway, so uh, people are really liking it. So that's good news. Good. Okay. So I did note. Uh, I watched the Apple announce uh, the new iPhone 5s, and uh, you know, like everybody's like, okay, sixty-four bit processor. That sounds interesting. You know, motion or the M7. Motion Let me ask you though, location, before before you process. go, jump on, okay, to the next thing, sixty-four bit processor. Uh, this it's hard to get the straight information on this. You're a programmer. You would understand the value or the non-value of sixty-four bits. You know, it's my understanding. Certainly on a desktop, the the clear advantage is you can address more memory, so you can break the four gigabyte uh, RAM. Barrier. This is not a problem on phones. They don't say how much memory uh, the iPhone has, but I guarantee it's not four gigs. It's much more likely a gig or two. There are. There's yeah. one phone that has three gigs. Nothing is more than that. The only the, the, the place where where 64 bit matters is where you're dealing with math of any kind that that can't fit in 32 bits. So the way a 32 bit processor handles it is in pieces. So you you know you add the two lower thirty two bits and maybe there's a carry from that. So you then add with the carry the upper thirty two bits. So in terms of performance, and that for also giant means, numbers though only right. Yes, I mean. yeah, exactly. For well, so crypto is giant numbers. Ah. Uh, gra- graphics all oftentimes uses giant numbers. Um, so it's just so. I mean, my sense, you know, here I am programming an assembler. I, I look at well. That's at why I ask because you know register sizes. Most most uh, programmers aren't aren't even aware of this, and yeah, that's what sixty so, four bit means, right? It means a it has registers of instead of eight or sixteen or thirty two. Double the length. They There's sixty four bit registers. Yeah, and, and a so, lot of what so, you do does not require sixty four bits. And right, like you know, character processing and right, so forth. That's eight, bit, eight bits, maybe two, yeah. maybe maybe sixteen if you're using. Right. Uh, so, I, my question is: Is it a marketing term, or is there some real value to be gained on a mobile platform with sixty four? Oh, bits? I see. I, I. That's a value judgment. I mean, I would. I'm only asking you: What are the technical advantages of sixty four bits? And. You can yeah. access more memory, and you can work on giant chunks of giant numbers. Correct. I guess if you're doing uh, moving data, you can move bigger chunks at a time, which is nice. If you're, that's why gaming yeah. would benefit. Although, for example, the, you know, what, what, what's happened with our processors is the, the processor speed has completely outstripped RAM speed. Right. You know, 
RAM is stuck because of its physics to being to being relatively slow. So we have a cache on the chip that that, that reads in so-called lines of RAM. It, it reads chunks of memory at a time because the notion is processors tend to stay sort of within their neighborhood as they're executing code. So so I, it you know it doubling the register size doesn't mean that the cache was doubled or that the cache line size was doubled. It probably wasn't. That's no, probably I'm sure it wasn't. Yeah. That you know those things are probably all the same. So I agree. I think maybe it's a little bit of specsmanship more than right. anything else. Extreme Notice Tech. That, uh, Joel Hreska says uh, on Extreme Tech it's marketing fluff, but yeah. I think that is and, a somewhat sub- somewhat subjective judgment. And the other thing I don't fully understand is the difference that ARM might uh, it, because we're using a risk a risk architecture with ARM. There may be a difference. That's different. I'm thinking, you know, 64-bit generally for me is a, is on this the Intel CISC stuff. That's I'm a little more familiar with. I'm not sure if the, it changes things in the ARM architecture, the V8. Yeah. When we were talking about how processors work, we did our whole processor technology yeah. series yeah. years ago. Um, one of the things that we made clear was that there is, you know, the reason the complex instruction set, the, the Intel-style instruction set, is inherently difficult to to run in low power is you've got all of this real estate taken up with very with instructions which have very low utilization. You have to have them because you want to be backward compatible to all the way back to an 8088 chip, which Intel, to their credit, is. But boy, they're dragging that legacy forward with every single generation. They still have to have all of that old gunk that you just have to know they would love to be able to flush. Whereas you know right. the, the ARM people were able to start, yeah. start from scratch, yeah, they do in on the ARM page. We're talking about their uh, X8 and the 64-bit. They do say, or V8, I should say, they do say that uh, they do mention cryptography specifically, and that yep. does make sense if you're dealing with giant primes. Yeah, I would I would say look at the phone we have now. And what it's able to do with 32 bits, it's like, that seems fine to me. Yeah. I mean, everything scrolls smoothly. Nothing is jerky and hesitating. I mean, they, they, it, clearly, you could engineer the phone around 32 bits if, if that's, you know, if that was what you needed. I'd, I just think we're going to see RAM get larger and ROM get larger. And, and the problem is with 64 bits, it just in general is more hungry. Even though they apparently have really got power consumption down, too, on this thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I knew of anyway, all the people I could ask about 64-bit, I thought you'd be the best. Uh, on so that fingerprints. One. The fingerprints. fingerprints yeah, yeah. Is, is interesting to me. Um, I think it's 100% cool. I love that it's round I, because that means it's orientation, orientation independent. Um, I, I sort of wish that it was a linear drag your finger over it approach because because then it's d- less easy to spoof it i've always felt you know if if you have to move your fingerprint over it you can get a lot of linear resolution and a lot of temporal resolution as you drag your finger across it um but but then you certainly don't get rotation neutrality and and it's clearly nice that you can put your finger down it with on any 360 degree you know orientation and it it spins it around and figures out what it's seeing <clears throat> and one of the things that i've been noticing in the buzz about this is people you know worrying about the security of it well 
the what I would remember what I would remind people is it is it is not its goal like a fingerprint that you leave behind at a crime scene to be able to identify you from the population of the world. You know, where we see in all of the, the crazy TV shows where the fingerprint comes up and, and, and the, 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 the computer's going, and like finding features. And, and you, then you see all these faces flashing by and we find the person that, you know, that one fingerprint belongs to. None of that is happening here. All that's happening here is that we've, that we've trained the phone to recognize one or a very few, because you can have multiple people trained, fingerprints out of everybody else. So that's a very different problem. That's the problem of, you know, here's five fingerprints that we've, or one, typically, if you just have just, just your phone, here's one fingerprint that we've seen over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Now comes a new one. Is it the same? That, you know, that's the question we're asking. Right. Is it the same? And so the beauty of this, if they've, if they've done it well, is it's every time you use it, it is refining its knowledge. Notice that you may actually put your fingerprint down in a slightly different p- p- position. So hopefully that gives it knowledge that it didn't have of a new region of your finger, whereas it has enough of the old of the region it's seen before to say, ah, oh, same guy. Look, it's moved over 17 pixels, but we got some more information here over on the right-hand side. So it expands the map of the finger. I mean, I, if, I, I, I trust them to have thought about this and to have done it right. And so it's exciting to think how well this could work because the question it has to answer is same fingerprint or not. And, and that's why, I, you know, potentially it can do a very good job of eh, this doesn't look the same. And, you know, it's going to be no doubt somewhere in the world are a collection of other people whose actual fingerprint looks enough like yours that it would say, oh, he's back when in fact, you know, he's not. But that's the same problem that that you have. This is actually a weak analogy, but we've all talked about how, you know, door keys are not ab- are not unique. There are not enough combinations for door keys for them to be unique. So there are other people in the world whose door keys fit our doors, you know, the front doors of our homes. But, you know, they don't know that and we don't know that. So it's good enough. And but it's definitely the case that somebody who you actually encounter at Starbucks who picks up your phone or or someone who steals your phone their particular fingerprint, none of their ten. Highly unlikely, yeah. And anyone they know are going <laughs> to fool this thing, yeah. So, so I anyway. I, Apple I think says it's that they're saving the fingerprint as a hash and encrypted to boot. Perfect. So That's it would exactly be, what they should do. It would be useless even if the NSA were to get the database. Yes, it would be absolutely possible to 
to run the recognizer, determine a bunch of characteristics after derotating it and recentering it and so forth, and then you take those characteristics and you hash them right. so that you get a you get a unfortunately you we use we'll reuse the term, you get a fingerprint of the fingerprint. Right. Um or a signature of the fingerprint is a better way to put it. And but you can't go backwards and figure out what those features were that generated that signature. And I believe, see, that's one of the other really nice things about what Snowden has done for us, is it's the level of scrutiny was already high. Now it's yeah. neurotic. Everybody's very paranoid. Yeah, It's good. Thank Not you. Bad. Get some, get, you Not bad. Know, tinfoil sales yeah. is up, and I think that's just fine. And, and I have to point out, and perhaps... People forget this. I don't know how many DMVs do it, but certainly in California, they fingerprint you when you uh, get your license. So uh, California has built a massive database of every driver in the state of their fingerprints. So the and NSA probably, really doesn't have to work that hard. <laughs> probably not encrypted. Not encrypted. Not I'm sure shared with the NSA. That's the reason they collect them. Yep, they're actually re recording your entire fingerprint right. image. Right. And, of course, that is why famously we've said when you go to Disneyland and they want to use your fingerprint yeah, right. uh, for access, give them your knuckle right. instead. Right. And then it's just a matter of time before they take a little bit of hair and then they get your DNA. And, you know, you can't knock it because every crime is solvable then. All you need is a fingerprint or a strand of hair. You can say you were there. You were on the oh, scene. You just put gloves on like Dexter and then you're fine. <laughs> okay, so... Um, uh, uh, shoot, there was one more thing. Oh, I did want to say that this scanner is subject to spoofing. Ah, so now this is a good question. Uh, because there were scanners that would look for an infrared heat signature, and then that would be, you'd have to be a live person. Uh, there are some scanners you could use a Play-Doh thumb. Now, we, there's a lot we don't know. Um, you can, for example, you can get someone's pulse from their thumb. Right. And so... Maybe Apple's doing that. I mean, not a lot. We don't. There's a lot we don't know yet. But as I understand it, it's a capacitive sensor which uses the ridge the difference in capacitance oh, between the ridges that are in, in that are closer and the grooves that are further away. And so it needs to be 3D. But somebody, I, I guarantee you. Um, they will take a they'll do an experiment they'll 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 take a thumbprint off of a wine glass you know lift it off or just you know dust it and then photograph it then they'll use a 3d printer to make a 3d image of that thumb and it will unlock the phone and it's like okay so proof of concept that's interesting we're going to see that and then yeah you could you know it, so so technically if you've got somebody's fingerprint I mean, if this works, we don't know for sure that it works, but if I were, if I had a lot of spare time on my hands, I would try it. Maybe one of our listeners who gets one of these new phones will be industrious and give it a shot. Somebody's going to post it up on YouTube and we'll certainly carry it when we find out about it. But, you know, maybe Apple's done something to defeat that where it's got to be, right. you know, I'd be a curious. Thumb. I, yeah. you know, here's the thing that I thought was most interesting. If it's just to unlock the phone, big deal. Then none of this is that important. It's just unlocking a oh, phone. Oh, Leo, I, I'm so... How long are you going to be gone? Three weeks. Okay, maybe I can wait. Don't wait, really, don't wait. No, 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 no. I really... Because one of the things that my solution needs is endpoint security. Because, you know... The, Authentication you, is, is so vital for all this stuff. Yes, and so it's... The, the power is... 
that that it's completely anonymous and but the ease of use is that you you would like it not to put you you know not to have to have you remember a big long password so i'm loving that there's now this fingerprint scanner doubtless they will export this to an api so that apps can say please put your thumb on the home key in order right. to, so that we know you're here well an implementation so of, awesome. of my of my code yeah. or my my approach on the iphone absolutely will will want to do that and, and so, the thing i thought was telling is that apple trusts it enough to use it not just for authentication on the yes. phone but for e-commerce yes. and they're putting their that's putting their money where their finger is because yeah, that means they're saying you can buy stuff on the app store just with your fingerprint, not with your password as, anymore. As Sarah said, she apparently has so many apps that she loves the idea. Oh, yeah. Just like, oh, I want this. And then, you know. It's very frustrating. Every time you update an iPad or an iPhone, you have to enter in your password. It's yep. extremely it's good, frustrating. And if it's a good password, then it uh, upgrades right. the frustration level. So this is, this is, I think, encouraging. I'm not going to run out and buy one until I see that API and third parties adopting it. But well, that I'm could make for, this that could make the iPhone 5s a must-have until others do the same thing, and it may well be that Apple, because they bought Authentic, has the rights to do this that others don't. Yeah, I, I'm up for plan upgrade on my on my Apple track. I've got a, a BlackBerry and a, a iPhone, so I'll be I'll be there. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, this is really cool, Leo. Net neutrality is a hard concept to explain. If you don't know about this, make a note, Leo, to check this out. The 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 URL is theinternetmustgo.com. <laughs> it I I tweeted it yesterday, um, and what I said was a terrific video that finally explains net neutrality. Everyone you share this with will finally get it. <laughs> anyway, it, it it it's a spoof of a guy who's hired by the the ISPs essentially to to like sell why net neutrality is a bad idea. <laughs> it says he, at the so, beginning this is for internal marketing purposes only. <laughs> yes, I love it. <laughs> anyway, it's really good. I mean, I I, I commend our entire audience. The internet must go dot com. Watch the video. It's also on YouTube, so you can just watch it on YouTube if you're interested. Um, and it's it's. I mean, he covers the bases. The the, the you know the, they're he like goes to privacy advocacy advocacy groups and like there's a bunch of you know hippie like people around the table and he, and they're like looking at him like he's lost his mind as he tries to tell them why it's all good that you'll be able to pay extra five dollars for to get these and five dollars to get this plan and someone says well that's cable TV we don't want that. He goes, oh yeah, you do. So anyway, uh, highly recommended. The internet must go. dot com. Love it. I'm sharing it on Facebook right now. Good. It's it's. I mean, because again, we've you know, it's a difficult concept to portray. And I found out about this from the EFF that is promoting this video. So you no, know, that you know, they're behind this too. Um, a little quick update on Spinrite. We have nailed the high speed technology. Um, we're generating benchmarks uh, using the the new low-level all-in-assembler uh, code, which is matching the manufacturer's absolute maximum sustained data throughput rates that they say their own drives can do. So 
So it's there was one that was uh, reasonably old. I think it was 78 megabytes per second uh, on the outer diameter of the disk. Seagate said this particular drive can do, and we're measuring it at 77.4. It is actually achieving the the absolute maximum that the drive is capable of. So that's what Spinrite will be doing. And we've we've got that technology nailed. Everybody, like about a hundred people, are are playing with that. We've also uncovered, as I knew we would, some weird boundary cases. There's a an older uh, OCZ Vertex Two SSD that turns out not to be ATA spec compliant. Um, uh, we we're telling it it says it's able to to handle transfers of six five five three six sectors at a time, but it doesn't. But even though everybody else's drives do, there, we've run across a couple add-on controllers that that misbehave and re-vector the hardware interrupt controller and sort of take it over. So I'm I'm now in the last few days here of like dealing with the fringe cases. I've come up with solutions for all of that. So um, anyway, it's it's going really well. And uh, um, of course, I will remind everybody that anyone who has spin right now. Uh, Spinrite 6 will be able to get a free upgrade to this hot new version um, uh, as soon as I have it ready. And actually, we'll make it available probably before it's it's officially released for people who want a beta test. We are getting new people joining the process. This is It's so fun to work in this mode because GRC has a news group server, an old-style news groups, NNTP, you know, um, uh, at news.grc.com, but that's not a web browser. You can't put news.grc.com into your web browser. You need a an NNTP client. Um, Thunderbird is one. Outlook actually even has news uh, capability. Um, I use Gravity, which is a, a nice free one that's been around forever on Windows. And but you know, and and the Macs got got a news reader. Uh, iOS has one called NewsTap that I use, but. It's it's really interesting because when we're in this mode, when I'm like there's people in the news group, we're working on stuff. Somebody will have a problem. I'll say, oh, and I'll like I'll be back in two minutes with another attempt and they'll run it and it fixes the problem. And people are just not used to like interactive software development where awesome. it's a, it's a cycle of like a few minutes and like something is resolved and some guy will like come back after being gone for three days and he'll go oh my god i can't believe what's happened in three days and it's because it's how fun is that for you that must be great oh, it's just incredible it's i mean it i'm dead by the end of the day but but will but i can cycle so fast yeah. that way that that you know people are able to say okay this didn't work or it hung and i'll go okay hold on a second and i'll i'll, I'll put some code in where it apparently hung that person will run it it'll spit out some diagnostics i'll go oh this is such shoot, a- okay and then i'll say i'll bet that your bios is not is, is like leaving oh, interrupts turned off awesome. and so i just add a a, a, a a turn interrupts back on problem solved okay move on to the next thing and so what it I, just allows us to move so fast i wonder i i you know you should write this up because very few people are doing development in this or, or have the luxury of doing development in this fashion. You have a it's devoted funny. group of people who are literate and smart, in, and you're, you're interacting with your beta testers in real time. Yes, it is real time development, awesome. and it's just incredibly. Write powerful. this up because this is this is something that other developers should pay attention to. And yet it's again, just, another really important 
point, the, the, proving the value of community. Yeah, having an interactive, well, real time community as we do with the chat room and so forth, so valuable. Yeah, well, and exactly. You see exactly that. Yeah. Um, I'm doing interactive, I- iterative pro, uh, broadcasting. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, it's really yep. cool. That's really cool. Are we ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? The perfect okay. accusation. Let me do an audible ad, and then we'll do it. How about that? Perfect. Perfect. All right. Uh, our friends uh, at Audible love the show. They know that if you listen to podcasts, you probably are already set for, uh, you're kind of like the ideal audience for Audible. The only person that we can't get to listen to Audible is Steve Gibson. <laughs> we try and we try. Yeah. He likes his Kindle. You know, you can buy Audible books that are whisper synced with Kindle. You can listen to the book, get out of the car, sit down in your armchair Fire up your Kindle, it'll jump right to that point, and vice that's versa. Amazing. Isn't that, that cool? Yeah, that's very cool technology. Look for uh, it, specially marked books, which is most of them at this point. They'll say Whisper Sync. And, and Amazon owns Artable, and they do something that's really nice. They give you a special deal on the Kindle uh, version of the book. So, you know, it's really a nice thing to do. I want you to take a look at audible.com. Not you, Steve, I know. We'll never get you. Although, I got to say, the science fiction collection is so good. All the Honor hey, Harrington books are on there. What I'm happy about is that, is that it's a low-friction way for the people I recommend yeah. books to yeah. to be able to read them. And so I've gotten so much feedback from people who are like, oh, my goodness, this is on Audible. Right. I'm so glad I can read the book. I, you know, it's, I'm not, I don't attach to the idea that you have to listen to books. If you're the kind of person like I am that uh, I pretty much had to stop reading because I just didn't have time, uh, but I was always in the car two hours a day commuting. I go to the gym an hour a day. These are times if I could just, you know, I can't hold a book, but if I could just listen. Uh, Audible gets me through that. In fact, it makes me exercise more. It makes me, uh, it, it. oh, look, the Jim Henson biography is coming. Now, this is a pre-order. One of the things Audible... Audiobooks have now been recognized by the publishing industry. They used to remember they do the abridged cassettes that you'd find at the bookstore. <laughs> now they understand. People want the whole book, every word, unabridged. They want good readers, great performances. So when books come out, like this Jim Henson uh, biography, which is hotly anticipated, comes out on the 24th. I'm sad I won't be in the country. Uh, I'll have to wait till I get back. Uh, but this, and it will be beautiful. It will be read by a by a a professional reader who give, brings the books to life. If you are that kind of person, you want to you want to continue to get books in your life, whether it's history, biography, thrillers, mysteries, or science fiction. Look at this: the Mushroom Hunters on the trail of an underground. See, I love books like this, which are about obsessional people. In this case, people who gather mushrooms, wild mushrooms, and just like a, a window into their lives. This is the kind of stuff I love. Audible has it all. I want you to try it. Here's the deal. We can get you a free book if you want to try it. We understand you may not, you may be skeptical. You may say, I don't know. Is it for me? I don't know. Visit audible.com. I'm sorry, audiblepodcast.com slash security now. The hard part's going to be picking a book, I got to tell you. You know, because I'm going to Venice, Audible knows that I, uh, and they said, here's how Venice rules the seas, city of fortune, Caravaggio, a life sacred and profane. Warriors of the Cloisters. Oh, that's interesting. The Central Asian Origins of Science in the Medieval World. I, I downloaded a book about Venice, the history of Venice, and so they said, oh, you might want more. I love when I'm traveling 
In fact, I got to get a book about Istanbul. I love listening to the history of the place I'm visiting while I'm walking around. It's so cool. Audiblepodcast.com slash security. Now pick your first book and, uh, and you know, you'll be signing up for the gold account. That's a book a month or a credit a month. Most books, 99.5% of the books are single credit books. Uh, so you pick your first book. You can cancel any time in the first 30 days. Pay nothing, but that book is yours to keep forever. And by the way, the subscription is great because you also get the daily audio edition of the uh, Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, your pick. Really is a good deal. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. You see, I have one credit left. I'm trying to decide. Got to find a good book on Istanbul. Istanbul was Constantinople. Now Istanbul's not Constantinople. I'm going to do some searching, but that's the end of the... Oh, Istanbul passage. Istanbul memories in the city. <laughs> the bastard of Istanbul. The star of Istanbul. See? Good stuff. A dead man in Istanbul. I don't think I'll read that. All right, Steve Arino, it's time to talk about a perfect accusation. Um, one thing I forgot to wrap up with is people have asked how they participate in that process I was just oh, describing. Oh, of course. Yeah. How can we do that? Uh, GRC.com slash discussions will take you to our page or uh, uh, up under services, I think, on the main menu is discussions. And so that's the page that lays out how to participate. Uh, the, 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 the domain name of the news server, a news server configuration in order to, to get there. We have a test group, grc.test, where people can attempt to do posts. It, it has a five-day expiration, so we generally host little random dialogues there. Uh, everything is saved forever in the news groups, and, there's, and so I'm operating in grc.spinrite.dev, as in short for development, that's where I am. But there's a Spinrite group. There's a Security Now news group where, where there's the discussion of the podcast topics and where sort of like for people who want to go much deeper, there's all kinds of stuff going on. I mean, it's a it's a little known bastion of 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 no you know like there's no flaming, there's no spam. It's just serious people who are interested in. This topic, and so if you're interested in participating, we'd love to have uh, you know the more the merrier. It ends up being a, a, a fun for everybody. Oh, I'm going to learn Turkish. I found the book I want to. <laughs> okay, so the perfect accusation. Um, one of the things that annoys me, uh, our listeners know, is when the headlines are clearly designed to attract readers, um, or as as I said, when not only the algorithms are hyperbolic, but the headlines are. Uh, CNBC had a headline, Internet experts want security revamp after NSA revelations. (laughs) Okay. And it's like, what? And then so it starts off, I won't bother everybody with the whole thing, but Internet security experts are calling for a campaign to rewrite web security. What? No, they're not. Uh, In the wake (laughs) of... (laughs) Of disclosures <laughs> that the U.S. National Security Agency has developed the capability to break encryption protecting millions of sites. Okay, there were no such disclosures. No one said that. I mean, it's just like, okay. Uh, um, just but, make up the news. You'll get more hits that way. They acknowledged the task won't be easy, in part. <laughs> 
because Internet security has relied heavily on brilliant government scientists who now appear suspect oh. to many. It's like, oh, gosh, just oh. shoot me now. Where is that from? So, where did you, where did that, that CNBC. Oh, well, no wonder. I know. Terrible. Anyway. This is so, what happens when you have people who don't understand technology, which is most people, uh, writing about tech, highly technical subjects and trying to get links. Now, unfortunately, the New York Times did a, I mean, it's, it's as if they took what scant information they have and read it the worst possible way, knowing nothing about the subject. So, yes, it creates an, an interesting, inflammatory story, but, I mean, which, as you know, as we were just saying, generates hits. But, boy, it, I mean, it, it leaves the wrong impression. At the same time, the raw data is also deeply disturbing, because the New York Times story linked to secret documents, um, which were, this was this next level of rollout. And, and in the actual secret document release, and now I'm reading from the source material, there's, you know, there's weird acronym stuff that the, the intelligence community uses, TS slash SI slash NF, whatever that stands for. Then, it, then we know that SIGINT is signals intelligence. So this says the SIGINT enabling project actively engages the U.S. and foreign IT industries to covertly influence and or overtly leverage their commercial products designs. These design changes make the system's in question, exploitable through SIGINT collection, e.g. endpoint, midpoint, etc., with foreknowledge of the modification. To the consumer and other adversaries, however, the system security remains intact. In this way, the SIGINT enabling approach uses commercial technology and insight to manage the increasing cost and technical challenges of discovering and successfully exploiting systems of interest within the ever more integrated and security-focused global communications environment. Okay, so that's political gobbledygook, but it also says, you know, or, in, in fact, now off to the side, the New York Times has summarized this, saying the NSA SIGINT enabling project is a $250 million a year program that works with Internet companies to weaken privacy by inserting backdoors into encryption products. Now, it's like, okay, but no examples, no names, no companies, no like we found one of these. No one's ever found one, but that's what we're saying. This excerpt from a two thousand from a twenty thirteen budget proposal outlines some methods the agency uses to undermine encryption used by the public. So again, what I just read is what the New York Times summarizes that way. And so it's true that what I read is is unsettling, but they're trying to get money. And that's one of the things I would like to remind people is, is 
you know, they talk about things coming online or we're, we're, we're making progress on this. So we need, you know, we need a new facility in, in Utah with, with lots of water to cool our supercomputers. And then we're going to rub our hands together and magic is going to happen. So again, this is, there are no specifics anywhere. Also, same document, different topic. Um, Basic resources in this project are used to, and there's two that are extra worrisome, insert vulnerabilities into commercial encryption systems, IT systems, networks, and endpoint communication devices used by targets. So they're saying that, but again, no specifics, no other information, just that that's what they say they're doing. And then the other one is, Influence policies, standards, and specification for commercial public key technologies. So it's interesting that they say that because that's what sort of that 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 raised the alarm among the crypto community that remembered a controversy from from seven years ago, where it's like, oh, I kind of remember something about that, and we're going to talk about that next. And then also here, um, uh, two more bullets is reach full operating capability for SIGINT access to a major internet peer-to-peer voice and text communication system. And that's been suggested maybe to be Skype, that, that there was that, there was that re-engineering of Skype that we know was specifically done so that they could, someone could respond to wiretap requests. And then also complete enabling for, and then it's blanked out here, redacted, encryption chips used in virtual private network and web encryption uh, devices. So it's like, again, no specifics, just strong and worrisome intent. Okay, so now let's look at someone who understands this exactly to sort of get our bearings. And this is Bruce Schneier, who back in 07, so so in, in when I'm I'm gonna read what he wrote, but he's talking about this just happened, this, you know, this is new. So 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 remember that this is then. This is this is this is seven years ago, six years ago, that that he's talking about. And and so it it's history. So he says. Random numbers are critical for cryptography, for encryption keys, random authentication challenges, initialization vectors, nonces, key agreement schemes, generating prime numbers, and so on. And those are, of course, things we've talked about in this podcast often. We all understand you've got to have a source of really good random numbers and what happens when you don't. Continuing, Bruce says, break the random number generator, and most of the time you break the entire security system, which is why you should worry about a new random number standard, remember new in 07, that includes an algorithm that is slow, badly designed, and just might contain a backdoor for the National Security Agency. So what I'm reading is the only thing anyone knows about. And all of this is sort of bubbled up from, 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 what, from this, what, what I'm reading. Generating random numbers isn't easy. 
and researchers have discovered lots of problems and attacks over the years. A recent paper found a flaw in the Windows 2000 random number generator. Another paper found flaws in the Linux random number generator. Back in 96, an early version of SSL was broken because of flaws in its random number generator. With John Kelsey and, and um, Niels Ferguson in 1999, I co-authored, says Bruce, Yarrow, a random number generator based on our own cryptanalysis work. I improved this design four years later and renamed it Fortuna in the book Practical Cryptography, which I co-authored with Ferguson. I'm afraid we've got a weed whacker going on outside. <laughs> Just, so. That's fine. It's not loud, but it's good to yeah, note it so that it people be. don't think it's their house. Don't think it's, yes, yeah. their, their earphones are falling out. <laughs> right. The U.S. government released a, oh, so here, here it comes. The U.S. government released a new, back in 07 again, official standard for random number generators this year. And it will likely be followed by software and hardware developers around the world called NIST Special Publication 800-90. The 300-page document contains four different approved techniques called DRBGs, Deterministic Random Bit Generators. All four are based on existing cryptographic primitives. One is based on hash functions. One on HMAC. One on block ciphers and one on elliptic curves. It's smart cryptographic design to use only a few well-trusted cryptographic primitives. So building a random number generator out of existing parts is a good thing. But one of those generators, the one based on elliptic curves, is not like the others. Called dual EC. DRBG, that stands for dual elliptic curve and then deterministic random bit generator. Not only is it a mouthful to say, it's also three orders of magnitude slower than its peers. Oh, that's good. That's yeah, an improvement. So it's like, oh, let's hurry up and use that one. It's in. That's a it's thousand like, times slower. Yes, yes. Because the other ones are, you know, they're, they're hash functions or they're a, a symmetric cipher that, that you That's run a counter through. Yeah. It's in the standard only because it's been championed by the NSA, which oh. first, for, for first proposed it years ago in a related standardization project at the American National Standards Institute, ANSI. The NSA has always been intimately involved in U.S. cryptography standards. It is, after all, expert in making and breaking secret codes. So the agency's participation in the NIST, the U.S. Co the Commerce, uh, the NIST is the U.S. Commerce Department's National Institutes of Standards and Technology standard, is not sinister in itself. It's only when you look under the hood at the NSA's contribution that questions arise. Now, I, I should stop for one second just to remind people that, for example, IBM many years ago developed DES, the Data Encryption Standard, and IBM proposed it as a standard. And it, it was a technology where there are these things called S-boxes. An S-box is a, it's a sort of a, 
it's a pattern box. You, you put in a byte and a different byte comes out. So there's a mapping inside between incoming and outgoing bytes. And DES has a bunch of these, um, which IBM, the cryptographers at IBM specified and said, this is really good. The NSA changed the design of the S boxes and never said why, but they did that. They just said, uh, this is better. And that then got standardized. Now, we know the DES is weak, but it wasn't as a consequence of that. It was because the key length was, was 56 bits, which is no longer secure. Thus, triple DES is, uses three different keys, each of that length, and does the DES thing three times. Much later, when our academic understanding of cryptography improved, people looked at what the NSA had done when we were at a position to understand it, and they had fixed it. If, I, if the original design had been left alone, DES would have, was already broken. It was bad. And so without saying anything, without giving away their secrets, the NSA said, uh, change it like this. Just trust us. And it turns out they fixed it. They, the NSA, secretly, without just telling us why, fixed the broken crypto that w was used universally. It was the, the, you know, DES was the banking crypto that, that was universally used for a long time until we, we got up to modern times. So, so certainly there are cryptographers and, and mathematicians and a lot of smart people at the NSA. It would be wrong to assume that their only goal is, is to, to, you know, crack internet crypto there is, they are equally responsible for helping us to have strong crypto so that foreign governments and terrorists and bad guys are unable to crack, to, to, to crack the crypto. So I just wanted to insert that here. Continuing with Bruce, remember, because they, you know, when you look under her, he was saying, you know, this dual EC DRBG is in the standard because of the NSA. Problems with dual EC DRBG were first described. Okay, now he's, he's writing this in 07. First described in early 2006. The math is complicated, but the general point is that the random numbers it produces have a small bias. The problem isn't large enough to make the algorithm unusable. And Appendix E of the NIST standard describes an optional workaround to avoid the issue. But it's cause for concern. Cryptographers, Bruce writes, are a conservative bunch. We don't like to use algorithms that even have a whiff of a problem. But today there's an even bigger stink brewing around dual ECDRBG. Today meaning 07 still, remember. So... So there were problems. Two papers were published that, that raised some concerns. Then in 07, so a year later, in an informal presentation at the Crypto 2007 conference in August, Dan Schumau and Niels Ferguson showed that the algorithm contains a weakness that can only be described as a backdoor. This is how it works. 
there are a bunch of constants, fixed numbers, in the standard used to define the algorithm's elliptic curve. These constants are listed in Appendix A of the NIST publication, but nowhere is it explained where they came from. What Schumau and Ferguson showed is that these numbers have a relationship with a second secret set of numbers that can act as a kind of skeleton key. If you know the secret numbers, you could predict the output of the random number generator after collecting just 32 bytes of its output. To put that in real terms, you only need to monitor one TLS internet connection if, remember, if it was encrypted using this pseudo-random number generator that nobody has ever used ever. But if it were, then you could only, you'd only need, need to monitor one TLS internet connection in order to crack the security of that protocol. If you know the secret numbers, you can completely break any instantiation of dual ECDRBG. The researchers don't know what the secret numbers are. But because of the way the algorithm works, the person who produced those constants might know. He had the mathematical opportunity to produce the constants and the secret numbers in tandem. Now, think, think public-private key. It's very much like that. We, we're, we, we understand that you produce a public key and a private key together, and and this, the point is one doesn't doesn't expose the other. Yet you need to use the other to undo the effect of the one. So, so it, the the analogy isn't perfect, but imagine that that we're using essentially a we're using essentially a public key in the form of these constants. Which are the, which actually are just you know an elliptic curve is a parametric curve. It's a curve described by you know y to the y cubed equals x cubed plus x three blah 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 you know that kind of thing Al, you know algebraic curve where the specific instance of the curve matters. So these numbers describe a single curve which is in the standard, and so we could think of it like the public key. Maybe what these what these researchers discovered is there's a the, it's a theoretically possible that there could be the equivalent of a private key matching those numbers which we know which are in the standard which are public which would completely break the random number generator. It's so again theory. Now I've looked at I've looked at the standard. I've also looked at the presentation that these guys gave, and they specifically say in their conclusion, slide number eight of nine, under conclusion, it says, all caps, what we are not saying is the NIST in intentionally put a back door in this PRNG. What we are saying, the prediction resistance of this PRNG as presented in the standard is dependent on solving one instance of the elliptic curve discrete log problem. 
and we do not know if the algorithm designer knew this beforehand. So what, what they're being very careful in saying is there's a, a theoretical weakness we've discovered. Maybe it's news to everybody, including the NSA. Um, maybe it's not. And so, so we're wondering more now about the behind-the-scene politics of this sort of today. So continuing with Bruce's post, he said, um, of course, we have no way of knowing, Bruce writes, whether the NSA knows the secret numbers that break dual ECDRBG. We have no way of knowing whether an NSA employee working on his own came up with the constants and has the secret numbers. And we don't know if someone from NIST, NIST, or someone in the ANSI working group has them. Maybe nobody does. Maybe they don't exist. We don't know where the constants came from in the first place. We only know that whoever came up with them could have the key to this theoretical backdoor. And we know there's no way for NIST or anyone else to prove otherwise. This is scary stuff indeed, writes Bruce. Even if no one knows the secret numbers, the fact that the back door is present, theoretically, makes dual EC DRBG very fragile. If someone were to solve just one instance of the algorithm's elliptic curve problem, he would effectively have the keys to the kingdom. Remember, only if people ever used this. But he could then use it for whatever nefarious purpose he wanted. Or he could publish his result and render every implementation of the random number generator completely insecure. It's possible to implement dual EC DRBG in such a way as to protect it against this backdoor by generating new constants with another secure random number generator and then publishing the seed. This Now get this. This method is even in the NIST document in Appendix A. But the procedure is optional and my guess is that most implementations, if there are any, of dual EC DRBG won't bother. In this, if this story leaves you confused, join the club, he says back in 07. I don't understand why the NSA was so insistent about including dual EC DRBG in the standard. It makes no sense as a trapdoor. It's public and rather obvious. It makes no sense from an engineering perspective. It's too slow for anyone to willingly use it. And it makes no sense from a backwards compatibility perspective. Swapping one random number generator for another is easy. My recommendation, says Bruce, concluding, if you're in need of a random number generator, is not to use dual ECDRBG under any circumstances. If you have to use something from this standard SP800-90, use the counter CTR DRBG or the hash, hash DRBG. In the meantime, both NIST and the NSA have some splaining to do, <laughs> says Lucy, or says, says Rick. <laughs> says Lucy. <laughs> so that's the story. That's pretty it's, funny, I have to say. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's weird. Yeah. And 
So this is what people th- thought of, they remembered, when they read these assertions in the budget request for the way the NSA wants to spend their money. Um, and and I want to, we've got about 50 minutes left before one o'clock when, you're, when you turn into a pumpkin, Leo. So I want to share what Matthew Green said, because uh, he is... He is a, a PhD. He's got his master's. He's at Johns Hopkins, a cryptographer. He originally was thinking he wanted to write a book on cryptography, and instead he just took to blogging. His blogs are excellent. He blogs at um, blogdop.cryptographyengineering.com. So it's so or just cryptographyengineering.com, and then you can see the link to his blog. Um, he weighed in on this. Um, and, and I'm going to skip down a little bit, saying all of this is a long way of saying that I was totally unprepared. So this is – he's just written this um, about last, last – the end of last week's revelations. All this of is, this is, the, this way- is the post we, I should just mention that Johns Hopkins initially forced him to take down. Uh, um, right? I don't think it was this one actually. Um, um, oh, it was it the was- one prior to that. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. He left it on Blogspot. He didn't take it down there, but the, the university compelled him in a really shameful display of uh, kowtowing of, of, to the NSA. Of a- academic censorship. Really yes. horrible. Yeah. Yeah. But I, and I'm sort of ignoring that because it's like, okay, fine. Um, but <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. But but and and but his take is is compelling. He said all of this is a long way of is a long way of saying i was totally unprepared for today's bombshell revelations describing the nsa's efforts to defeat encryption not only does the not only does the worst possible hypothetical i discussed appear to be true but it's true on a scale i couldn't even imagine i'm no longer at the crank i wasn't even close to cranky enough and since I never got a chance to see the documents that sourced the New York Times ProPublica story, and, I, and he says, and I would give my right arm to see them, I'm determined to make up for this deficit with sheer speculation, which is exactly what this blog post will be. So then he, he talks about Bull Run and Cheesy Name, which are two of the project names. <laughs> he says, I know, cheesy name, they named it. If you haven't read the ProPublica New York Times or Guardian stories, you probably should. Um, the, 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 the takeaway is that the NSA has been doing some very bad things. At a combined cost of $250 million per year, they include tampering with national standards, NIST specifically mentioned, to promote weak or otherwise vulnerable cryptography. Influence standards committees to weaken protocols, working with hardware and software vendors to weaken encryption and random number generators, attacking the encryption used by, quote, the next generation of 4G phones, obtaining clear text access to, quote, a major Internet peer-to-peer voice and text communication system. And he writes in, in, in parens, Skype, identifying and cracking vulnerable keys, Establishing a human intelligence division, the so-called HUMINT, to infiltrate the global telecommunications industry. And worse of all, to me, somehow decrypting SSL connections. All of these programs go by different code names, but the NSA's decryption program goes by the name Bull Run. So that's what we'll use here. So he says, how to break a cryptographic system. 
There's almost too much here for a short blog post, so I'm going to start with a few general thoughts. Readers of this blog should know that there are basically three ways to break a cryptographic system. In no particular order, they are, one, attack the cryptography. This is difficult and unlikely to work against the standard algorithms we use. As, as Schneier says, trust the math. Trust the math. He says, though there are exceptions like RC4. However, there are many complex protocols in cryptography, and sometimes they are vulnerable. Two, go after the implementation. Cryptography is always implemented in software, and software is a disaster. Hardware isn't that much better. Unfortunately, active software exploits only work if you have a target in mind. If your goal is mass surveillance, you need to build insecurity in from the start. That means working with vendors to add back doors. Three, access the human side. Why hack someone's computer if you can get them to give you the key? And he, write, he says, he writes, Bruce Schneier, who has seen the documents, says that math is good, but that code has been subverted. He also says that the NSA is cheating, which assumes we can trust these, which, assuming we can trust these documents, is a huge sigh of relief. But it also means we're seeing a lot of two and three here. So he says, so which code should we be concerned about and which hardware? This is probably the most relevant question. If we're talking about commercial encryption code, the lion's share of it uses one of a small number of libraries. The most common of these are probably the Microsoft Crypto API and embodied in Microsoft's S channel, the so-called secure channel, along with the open SSL library. Of the libraries above, Microsoft is probably due for the most scrutiny. While Microsoft employs good and paranoid people to vet their algorithms, their ecosystem is obviously deeply closed source. You can view Microsoft's code if you sign enough licensing agreements, but you'll never build it yourself. Moreover, they have the market share. If any commercial vendor is weakening encryption systems, Microsoft is probably the most likely suspect. And this is a problem because Microsoft IIS powers around 20% of the web servers of the Internet, but nearly 40% of the SSL servers. Moreover, even third-party encryption programs running on Windows often depend on the, on the CAPI components, which is this, this Microsoft Secure API, the crypto API, including the random number generator. That makes these programs somewhat dependent on Microsoft's honesty. Probably the second most likely candidate is OpenSSL. I know it seems like heresy to imply that OpenSSL, an open source and widely developed library, might be vulnerable. But at the same time, it powers an enormous amount of secure traffic on the Internet, thanks not only to the dominance of Apache SSL, but also due to the fact that OpenSSL is used everywhere, he has in italics. Only, you only have to glance at the, uh, at the FIPS validation lists to realize that many commercial encryption products are just thin wrappers around OpenSSL. Unfortunately, 
while OpenSSL is open source, it periodically coughs up vulnerabilities. I like that, like a furball. Uh, part of this is due to the fact that it's that, yeah, that it's a patchwork nightmare originally developed by a programmer who thought it would be a fun way to learn big num division. Isn't that funny? He was studying C. Yeah. Part of it is because crypto is unbelievably complicated. Either way, there are very few people who really understand the whole code base. On the hardware side, and while we're throwing out baseless accusations, it would be awfully nice to take another look at the Intel security key integrated random numbers generators that are that are that most Intel processors will be getting shortly. Even if there's no problem, it's going to be awfully it's going to be an awfully hard job selling these internationally after today's news. Anyway, and he goes on which standards, uh, which people. Uh, are involved if it's hum- if, if it's human int and, and finishing up it says so what does it all mean I honestly wish I wish I knew part of me worries that the whole security industry will talk about this for a few days then we'll all go back to our normal lives without giving it a second thought I don't think that's the case I'm saying he says I hope we don't though right now there are too many unanswered questions to just let things lie the most likely short-term effect is that there's going to be a lot less trust in the security industry and a whole lot less trust for the U.S. and its software exports. Maybe this is a good thing. While we've been saying for years that you can't trust closed code and unsupported standards, now people will have to verify. Even better, these revelations may also help to spur a whole burst of new research and redesigns of cryptographic software. We've been saying that even open code, like OpenSSL, needs more expert eyes. Unfortunately, there's been little interest in this, since the clever researchers in our field view these problems as solved, and thus somewhat uninteresting. You know, they're not interested in, like, some stinky implementation of the algorithms they created. It's the math that, you know, that turns them (laughs) off. What we learned today is that they... Sol- that that they're solved all right, just not exactly the way we thought. So that's where we are. Um, my feeling is that this is great. This, I mean, this bruja is as I mean, this is a perfect sort of second echo of the original Snowden shockwave. Um, that really hits the core of the crypto industry. You know, we now have we have absolute evidence that there was influence a long time ago by the NSA on the standards um, on, on the standards body NIST that got this standard introduced. I also did read um, in all of the research that that, that this particular standard got into Vista. Um, so apparently it's in Windows Vista and 7 and 8. Um, I've, I haven't done any further research to, to track it down. But again, nobody uses it. It's in, in, in the same way that, you know, we've talked about how SSL, your, your browser has a whole bunch of, of possible security protocols that it knows. The server has a whole bunch and they negotiate the best that they both know. 
Similarly, th- this is it's a it's it's a random number generator that is weird and untrusted and a thousand times slower and you know nobody would choose to use it but it's sort of there so but the, the point is though that as bruce says cryptogra- cryptography is ultra conservative cryptographers are never again will this be allowed to happen and that's why this is a good thing elliptic curves themselves are fine i mean there are there are many good elliptic curve algorithms. We're moving towards them because they're faster, they use smaller keys. So there's like there's nothing wrong with an elliptic curve. It's just a it's a way of implementing the discrete logarithm problem that we'll be talking about a little bit more in the future. So so that's not it. It's when, you know, what when a standard says use this one particular curve from the family and it and it needs to be in the standard. And then Appendix A says, oh, but you could also use random values if you wanted to, as long as you also use the one in the standard. So, I mean, it is highly suspicious. The good news is that's enough to be an object lesson, an object lesson for all time to, to never accept something like this and just shrug our shoulders. I mean, we now wish we had put our foot down and said, absolutely not. Unless you can tell us where these numbers came from, we're not using them. I, again, this, so this is great for that reason. I don't think this will ever happen again. And Good. I, my feeling is, you know, w- what, what we've seen is a lot of hyperbole, a lot of glaring headlines to, you know, to, to draw readers. Um, the scariest possible conclusions drawn from admittedly scary intent you know, they, they certainly there is budgetary intent in like if you give us money, we're going to be able to do these things. So Congress, open your checkbook. Um, so I think that creates some motivation for them overstating what they can do. Um, uh, but again, it's, you know, if they can install a keystroke logger in someone's machine, you don't have to break the encryption of what's leaving their machine because you get it beforehand. Right. It just, you know, this is exactly what you'd expect. They're trying every method they can to get through the dark net, and uh, and yes, and they're and they've got apparently budgeted a quarter of a billion dollars a year to do it. So, uh, you know, hey, if they want to subvert me, give me a few million dollars a year, I'd do it. Well, and again, you know that the the technologies we're actually relying on. This is not a, this wacky random number generator. Nobody uses. Right. So you know, not, maybe not even ECC. People keep saying ECC is using this elliptical curve. RNG. No, 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 no one. No. It's too slow. Ellipt- Why would you use something a thousand times slower? Correct. Correct. There's no and, motivation and, to do that. And 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 I'm 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 a little worried that people are going to misunderstand ECC. Elliptic curve cryptography has nothing to do with this except it uses the term elliptic curve and <laughs> and it's it it it's just the, the, idea it's just is the that, same name, I guess. Right, right, it is. And and so for example, you could you could take you could there are Many ways to generate random numbers. You could take a hash function and take the output of the hash function and feed it back in. And then it's, you're going to get a different output. And you feed that back in. You get a different output. And you feed that back in. You get a different output. Well, there's a random number generator using a hash function. Right. Similarly, you could take a cipher and you feed its output back to its input. Oh, look, now you've got random numbers. Or 
you could you you could use an elliptic curve in exactly the same way, right. and that's what this does. Is it it uses it just sort of feeds it back to itself. The the question is why that particular one? Because there's an infinity of them, <laughs> and in Appendix A it says you could also use a really good random number and make up your own curve. <laughs> except the standard supplies one, right. and that's that's the, point. the problem. Yeah. Yes. And if you use uh, an open PGP implementation. When you generate your one of the concerns somebody had is if Intel does put these a backdoor, let's say, into a a chip that's in hardware, uh, you know, these hardware RNGs. Uh, to my every PGP open PGP implementation I've used, of course, uses random number generators, but also uh, gathers entropy from uh, mouse moves and keystrokes. Does does that mean we don't have to worry uh, in that case? Yes. Um, yes. Um, for example, what I will be coming up with soon also needs random numbers because everything does. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have the person wave their their camera phone around and stream all of the data from the camera into mm -hmm. a hash. Mm -hmm. And so we'll take the random number that that the iOS gives, but then XOR it with the one we make locally. So we get the benefit of both. So even and if so the random number generator is flawed, and they're all, suit, by the way, we should say pseudo-random number generators. That's the issue. Is it's Actually, no. We've passed that now. Are we Intel's, better at that? Oh, good. Okay. Intel is true quantum random numbers. Got it. It is not algorithmic. It's it's and I've read several articles now about what Intel's doing, and I mean it's wonderful. It, it's great. But, but again, even if it were c compromised, hashing it with with chaotic information produces yes. a unpredictable result. Just just turn the microphone on and digitize the noise right. and and mix that in and then even if there was some bias you've washed that away. Right. Yep. Okay. So you can trust the math and you can trust open source implementations of things like PGP. I use a GNU Privacy Guard and I love it. Yes. It is and that's the key. Nothing actually mainstream, not SSL, TLS, <laughs> nothing anyone is actually using is has in any way been hurt. Just this bizarre, weird seven year old one particular elliptic curve random number generator that nobody would ever choose. But it no is the smoking choosing. gun that says, look, they are trying to subvert. It's a lesson. Yes, yeah. exactly. It's a fabulous object lesson. Right. And that's why I named this podcast whatever I named it. A perfect the, accusation. The perfect accusation. Because, you know, okay, you fooled us once. Right. You, you know, we're not accepting numbers and no. we don't know where they came from no. ever again. No, no, no. And one can presume that they are uh, attempting to subvert Microsoft and Google and engineer, in, individual engineers or corporately or with NSLs. There's a constant assault on corporations. That's, by the way, the damage this this does. It makes yes, us that, not trust anybody. You, you heard me yesterday or last week saying I have a problem with using um, uh, Bit, whatever it is, Microsoft's Bit encryption. BitLocker. I just like because okay, we don't know. It's how a, could I trust? It's that? a binary blob, you know, and it could be compromised. Yes, whereas we've got stories of people using TrueCrypt and, you know, and Brazil sending drives to the FBI because, you know, they, know, they can't just, figure out what's in there. can't crack it. Right. Yeah. Oh, and I forgot to mention also, I should have, because so many people tweeted, I said last week that, that, um, that uh, uh, Greenwald's uh, partner, Miranda, 
was had a, had the password written down right. on paper. I'm sure you remember, Leo, that yeah. that Greenwood, Greenwald is absolutely denying that. He's saying, oh, "Whoa, good. you know, okay. it was not written down. That was you know made up." And by the way, they have not decrypted the documents. Apparently, there was some small cache, maybe uh, that weren't encrypted in the first place. Uh, um, so we again, we got. I, I wanted to make sure that I just said that that you know that all I was relating was the the news that we had at the time, but. But Greenwald has said, absolutely, believe me, we were. this was not written down on paper. So that sounds like, you know, GQHQ or whatever they're called, you know, trying to excuse themselves for forcing the, you know, right. being able to claim right. poor security. See, we found a security. post-it note, right. <laughs> yeah, claim poor security, and thus we're going to, you know, right. trash all your hard drives right. in the basement. Sad. Never a dull moment in security, Leo. It is fascinating, and if you are interested, <laughs> this is the show for you every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1800 UTC, on Twit.tv if you want to watch live. Steve offers 16 kilobit audio for those who are bandwidth impaired but would like to still listen on his site, grc.com. You'll also find full English language transcriptions, thanks to Elaine Ferris and Steve, uh, who makes those available, grc.com. When you get there, you might want to buy Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and utility. Pays my bills. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Steve, by buying Spinrite. And you'll get the benefit of this great tool. He's also got a lot of freebies. You can check them all out. In fact, if you, are else. we going to do questions next week? I guess so, huh? Yeah. Barring breaking news, uh, uh, you can leave your questions there, too. GRC.com slash feedback. Steve does not do email. Don't try. People keep saying, what's Steve's key? I say, I don't know. He doesn't do email, dude. <laughs> Uh, you can get full bandwidth audio and video of the show at our site, twit.tv slash SN, or subscribe to any of our feeds uh, on your favorite podcatcher like iTunes, etc., etc., and you'll get it each week automatically. Steve, thanks so much. I guess... Uh, Do we have you, or are you gone now? This, I guess this is farewell, my friend. For three weeks, right? I so will be three, in Venice so a week from today. And are, do I know? Are we going to have Iaz, or is Tom going to do it from his lair, or do we um, know? who's going to who's hosting next week? Uh, Tom, is Tom Merritt will be hosting from the okay. from the Merritt lair. Cool. I think that'll well, that'll be fun from uh, from one uh, Skype to the next. Yes, from one Skype to another. Yeah. yeah. So I'll be I'll be back uh, October 9th, uh, three weeks hence. But don't hold back, dude. Do it, man. I'll listen. I'll be listening to the shows. I'll be listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All I'll. Uh, right. You okay. do what you want. You yeah, you I, always I, do. I mean, I can't. I, I, I expect <laughs> that I'm a few days away from being able to to put the the work that we've got on on data throughput aside. Then I need to work on communicating this. Um, yeah, I'm sure. And so we'll just see how it, it goes. all takes longer than one expects. It, it always takes longer. That's why I don't do schedules. Yes. I just show up here every week. <laughs> That's the schedule. And just a heads up, we are looking at moving. Uh, I think to Thursday, right? What do we? What do we? Uh, uh, Tuesday about? at one Tuesday was at the la- was the last I heard yeah. from Liz. Uh, we're we're working on uh, our, Lisa, right? our ne- Lisa, our next our new schedule, uh, which will debut uh, next year yeah. after the Christmas uh, breaks, and uh, some shows will be moved, including I believe this one. So I just want to warn people because I know everybody hates change, uh, but it will help me because I will then get two consecutive days off instead of. Uh. Uh, the donut that I get right now. <laughs> okay, so uh, have a great have a great trip for the next three weeks, and we'll uh, we'll be talking to him when you get back. I got my Venice guidebook. I got my Istanbul guidebook. 
I got my Turkish language lessons at Audible. <laughs> you got Audible? Exactly. I'm ready. I know enough Italian to be dangerous, so I'm... You know, it's fun. You can actually ask uh, Google now. You can ask, you know, you could say, you know, how do you say, uh, where's the bathroom in Italian? It'll tell you. It's kind of No cool. kidding. Yeah, you want to see? Oh. Okay, Google now. Oh, it's locked. Is it locked? Yeah, let me unlock it first. Okay, Google now. How do you say, where is the bathroom in Italian? Did you hear it? Uh-huh. Dove il bagno? That see that's that's the future right now. Wow. Right here right now. I love that. <laughs> All right, Steve, we'll see you uh, in a month. Yes, on security. Thanks, now. Leo. Bye-bye. Security now.